This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Hello and welcome to Historia Ecclesia, brief looks at issues in church history. My name is Camden Busey, and I recently sat down with Daryl Hart to discuss American Presbyterianism. We trace through in the modern age class at Westminster is, is the developments in the General Assemblies between 23, 24, and 25. I think it went from Bryan to McCartney to Erdman. Mm-hmm. Um, what could you say for, for the developments over that period of time? And do you have any anything to mention regarding the uh, the influence each of those moderators had and the, the general air? About the GA and then the the developments and the uh, the pronouncements they made. When I teach, well, both on Machen and American Presbyterianism, I tend to say that um, too often the histories look at the elections of the moderator like we <laughs> look at the elections of presidents. It was more a lot more complex than that. Well, yeah, I mean, and a moderator really doesn't. I mean, the way that the system worked, then a moderator did have power to appoint some committees and things like that. Yeah, which he, would stack, he cle- would stack his committees. Right, er- and Erdman clearly did that with forming the Special Commission of 1925. It doesn't seem to me that M- McCartney did much. Um, and, you know, a good moderator is someone who facilitates uh-huh. the debates and gets out of the way. Uh-huh. Um, a parliamentarian who... Yeah, so, I mean, the real... The real battles were probably going on at the level of presbytery, and which commissioners were going, and 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 matters like that. I should mention that there is a fellow, Chris Schlecht, who's the dean. I think he's still the dean, although I'm not sure if he's doing that now since he's in a PhD program at Washington State. But he's doing a um, a, a, a his dissertation there on. Everyone else aside from Machen, maybe even someone Machen who was who was part of the independent board and who was tried, okay. looking at their trials, and and what he's finding in the archives is just amazing stuff about the way the politics were playing out at the level of presbyteries. And he's found he's found out a lot of stuff about the way the politics of the Machen trial played out too. Um, not in any way to, that was helpful, <laughs> as you might imagine. To Machen. And one of the ironies is that Lewis Mudge, who was the stated clerk of the PCUSA then, um, and kind of orchestrated the trial so that Machen could not transfer t- to the Presbytery of Philadelphia, which he, he, he actually was in New Brunswick, right? He did successfully, but supposedly the paperwork hadn't been filed <laughs> appropriately. Lost in the mail. Um, Mudge is buried in the Princeton Cemetery but maybe 20 paces from Warfield. Okay. And uh, it's really quite um, ironical and, uh, and poignant for me whenever I visit Warfield's grave to have to kind of also reckon with Mudge's grave there. But um, so I mean, in some ways it could be the sta- people like the stated clerk, people who are, who are the, the uh, full-time bureaucrats, so, so to speak, who are much more influential in getting the work of the church done, sure. um, what either well or or, or badly. Um, 
So, but I mean, in that, in that period, twenty three through twenty five, I think the Auburn affirmation was a huge, uh, a huge moment when conservatives really did have an opportunity with people whose names were on a document. I always yeah. tell this to students: be careful what you sign, be careful what you write that it can be used against you. But conservatives didn't use the Auburn Affirmation against any of those 1,300 ministers or so who, who signed. Isn't that many? It, 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 finally, I think the t- total was something like that. And uh, maybe 1,300 officers, maybe not just ministers. But um, So, I mean, that was a real missed opportunity and would really come back to bite conservatives. So... So between the Auburn Affirmation, which was in 23-24, and then Erdman's commission, special commission of 25, mm-hmm. the whole thing shifted. And then the missions controversy kept it alive, but, but just because the, um, the progressives or modernists were so was kind of stupid. Do you, think, do you think uh, pushing harder on the Auburn Affirmation and... Maybe forcing through the five fundamentals would have warded off the rethinking missions and the whole modernist agenda. Well, if if liberals really would have left the church, which supposedly was they were they were almost ready to do in 1925 before Erdman appointed the commission to try to um, smooth things out, find out the real nature of the controversy. If they had left, um, see, if they if they had left, they would have. The tendency throughout American Presbyterianism is always for the two sides to, to come back together. So eventually, they would have After come the back. Civil War, yeah. right? So new side, old side came back together. Old school, old school, new school came back together, um, and chances are. Progressives and conservatives might have tried to come back together in some way, especially if a whole synod had left the church, mm. say the Synod of New York. Um, and, I mean, just to sort of illustrate that in the case of the OPC, when the split between the Bible Presbyterians and Orthodox Presbyterians happened 37. in thirty-seven, George Marsden has argued and I think rightly, and Meether and I have followed him on this, that in some ways it paralleled the old school, new school division, the Bible Presbyterians being new school. The differences over being theologically conservative and then being theologically conservative and socially conservative, right? Right. Part of the issue and why the Bible Presbyterians left and also some dispensational tendencies. As well as some kind of moralistic... Yeah, that's what I mean, the social conservative. Right. Um, So, I mean... The OPC was much more sticklers about Reformed doctrine and polity, and the Bible Presbyterians were more sticklers on some other things. Right. But that that division... (laughs) Right. That division almost came back together when the OP and the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod started merger talks in 69. Okay. Both sides had to deal with the split of 37 because the RPs were largely um, the Bible Presbyterians who had left McIntyre in the 50s. They had picked up a small Reformed Presbyterian group, but it was largely a, a, a Bible Presbyterian group. 
So they had to revisit the split of 37. And what was amazing to me in my work on the OP history now that, that I've just been working on is um, how many Orthodox Presbyterians were willing to kind of eat that one mm-hmm. and let it go. And and so you almost had a, a new school, old school reunion, reunion then wow. uh, between the RPCES and the OPC. Um, now, that didn't happen. OP didn't have a sufficient majority of votes in 75 for that merger to happen. And then eventually the RPs went into the PCA in 81, RPCES. Yeah. And, of course, the OPC tried to get on that bandwagon, too, and and and, di- and failed. And I think, I mean, and what I... This is the last chapter of this forthcoming 75th anniversary history, but these ecumenical discussions were the context for the OPC actually forming the Office of the Historian and the Committee for the Historian. Really? And it was really then with Charlie Dennison's leadership that the OPC began to recover its... Identity. Its, yeah. Well, at least its founding identity. Founding. And to think about that more and, and to use it more as in, in going forward with the future. Now, you know, um, how much that's been successful is anyone's guess at this point. But I do think that there's much more historical self-consciousness on the OPC's part now than there was in 85 or so. Let me ask you what, what the spirit of the OPC was in 73 when the PCA was formed. And then, I don't know, let's, let's, let's march on through a little bit of recent history. What was the uh, OPC's views or understanding of what happened in 83 with the PCUSA? And then, uh, I don't know, what, what do you think the OPC's understanding is with recent developments with the EPC and, and uh, mm-hmm. those who are leaving the PCUSA for a slightly more conservative Presbyterian well, body? I would say the P- the, the the place to start, in some ways, is, is confession of '67 in the PC or the UPC USA. This <laughs> um, prior to the Southern Church right. coming in, yeah. So the PC USA is the church that the OPC had left in '58. They became the UPC PCA for the listeners, Presbyterian Church of America. Right, right. the right. main line. We don't want to conf- confuse PCA versus PCA now. The way right. we understand it. Right, but but the mainline church in the north was the PCUSA until 1958 when they, yeah. they merged with the UPCNA, the United Presbyterian yeah. Church of North America, which was a a, a, um, a body going back to seceder roots in, in Scotland, um, sort of a northern branch of, um, of the uh, ARPs, in effect. They were large, they were dominant in western Pennsylvania, uh, John Gerstner taught at their seminary. They were much more conservative. It's the church that the Denisons grew up in, okay. the, UP, the UPCNA. But they merged in 1958 with the PCUSA, thus making the PCUSA the UPCUSA <laughs> between 1958 and 1983. So the Confession of 67 affects that northern mainline church. And the OPC made all sorts of efforts to cultivate the conservatives in the in the mainline church to come out. You know, okay. this is finally proof of modernism. You know, Bart... Yeah, the, the, the argument is in 67, many 
argue or see it as a capitulation to neo-orthodox, right. neo-orthodoxy. And I think at that point, the OPC kind of lost its older rationale, which is we are the true successors to the main to the mainstream American Presbyterian right. Church. Now that you know, and the the liberal church w- was their rival. Now the liberal church sort of just gave up and wasn't going to fight anymore. We're going to be something different. So they had their book of confessions, their new confession of '67, and I think that kind of rocked the OPC as far as what it was. Yeah. You know, we no longer we're no longer fighting liberalism. Now what do we do? Um, and during that time too, from 1956 or so up until 1974, the OPC had been engaged in protracted discussions with the CRC to merge. Yeah. And it almost happened several times. They While they were trying to woo one of our biggest figureheads uh, in Van Til. Or was, that was earlier. That right. was in the 40s, right. I should say. Right. Yeah, that was in the 40s. Okay. And then, so in 1973, when the PCA is founded, I, I think the OPC looked to the PCA as almost as if, well, maybe somebody will like us. Uh-huh. Somebody will take us. And so the, it was amazing how much effort the OPC, or how much cord, cordial outlook the OPC extended to the PCA right away, even though the, the PCA was a very much a, um, a mixed body at the, at the beginning. And even um, uh, Paul Settle concedes as much in his 25th anniversary history of the PCA, how, how many fundamentalist and and even other kinds of elements were in the PCA that there wasn't just this rock-ribbed old-school Presbyterianism there. Some of that was there, but a lot of it wasn't. It was it was only in the in the uh, minority. But I think with the influence of uh, Ed Clowney, especially who was very much um, at the forefront of ecumenical conversations with different churches the OPC kind of jumped into ecumenical discussions with the PCA, resulting in the mid-70s with um, Great Commission Publications, which had been the OPC's Christian Education Publication Endeavor. That became a joint project of the PCA and the OPC. So today. Right. Mm-hmm. But everybody assumed that that would, that would be the, the beachhead of a yeah. union between the two churches. Um, and And so... That was the major consideration for the OPs then from 73 down to 86, which was how to make it work with the PCA, how to get a bigger footprint in American Protestantism. Um, and this was a time when, too, New Life Presbyterianism was, was thriving and growing, and it seemed to be the wave of the future. Um, and New Horizons magazine was originally sort of very much uh, uh, influenced by New Life folk, um, and and Christian Ed was also very much influenced by New Life folk. So it really did seem like that was the case. But people like Charlie again were important for not only raising the historical consciousness of the OPC, but for trying to hold on to a a more conservative version of Orthodox Presbyterianism so that even though many were very disappointed with the failure of JNR in 1986 joining and receiving with yep. the PCA um, that, that, ki- that kind of also settled some things and OPs were willing to go forward with without the PCA and still as a small 
kind of remnant church. Now, I think Charlie's version of being a remnant church was not one that everybody bought, but still, he was he was important in making that case and grooming a whole host of younger ministers who were also much more willing to conceive of the church in that direction. Charlie was responsible for grooming Danny Olinger, who's now the sec- general secretary of CCE. Mm-hmm. Charlie was responsible for, for um, channeling John Meather and me into writing more about the um, history of the OPC. So, I mean, Charlie was very influential in some very small ways and in some big ways with the with the anniversary volumes that he produced in 1986 for the OPC's 50th um, that really did I think kind of move the OPC if it was heading in a certain direction he really shifted that where where the direction the OPC was going in if you can put it on one person now that's really hard to do I think with a, with even a church as small as the OPC to, to claim that one person had that kind of influence, but I still think Charlie had a very important role in um, in the history of, of the OPC and and and, uh, and was very helpful. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, what do you think about the OPC's identity and? Uh, what would be the OPC's, in general, uh, view of, of the current developments in the mainline church with people yeah. leaving for the EPC? And is that something so far off the radar it really has no bearing? Or do you find uh, that there is some significance for the OPC as a denomination? It seems to me it's so far off the radar. The mainline is so far off the radar now, the OPC. Mm-hmm. Going all the way back to '67. And, and the Confession of 67, that I don't know how many Orthodox Presbyterians actually follow it or are would view it as hopeful in any way. Yeah. Um, I think the APC is, though, much more of a player in, the, in PCA circles because of, um, I mean, there have been some traffic in, from both ways, from the EPC to the OPC and vice versa. You mean PCA? I'm sorry, PCA. Yeah. Um, it seems much more natural. I, we don't want to be too dogmatic about these things, but in terms of uh, denominational uh, position on some sort of spectrum, it would seem as though the way things pan out right now, it would go from left to right, uh, mainline, EPC, PCA, OPC. Mm-hmm. I think right. that's probably right. even people in the PCA would agree with that assessment. Right. Um, and so the natural step for a church who's in the EPC would be to go to the PCA rather than to go right to jump and and the and the EPC is becoming and in that in that spectrum of things, the EPC is becoming the place where the confessing church folk in the in the PCUSA. Yeah. Are going now. I know there there are some EPC folk who aren't happy about that. That there's, I guess they're getting cre- flooded by. They've created yeah. a a presbytery of affinity for yeah. that group, and yeah. and that's right. Really, I don't think EPC polity was all that strong to begin with, and so when you add throw on top of that, then a presbytery of affinity it gets even more complicated. Um, but if you look at the traffic in the OPC. 
from within the OPC, it's generally people move from the OPC into the PCA yep. and not into the EPC. There was one church, though, that went to the EPC. It was the Wheaton Church, Bethel Church. That majority of that congregation, when they left in 88 or, or 9, over questions about women's roles in church and maybe even some women in office questions, and the OPC was debating that then, too, as far as whether women could be deacons or not. Uh-huh. Um, the, that, the, the majority of that church that pulled out of the OPC and, and started a, a new building and a new congregation, they eventually aligned with the EPC. But that's about the only OP congregation that I know that's, that's gone in that direction. Mm-hmm. And why they didn't go in the PCA, I don't... Mm. I, think, I think because the, even the PCA was more conservative than they were willing to be at that point. So. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, I've just always I've been interested in this subject because my parents' church just flipped over to the EP. I would be much happier if they would have just gone right into the PCA, but the EPC is, is really the only logical solution for a church that is egalitarian but still right. wants to hold on to some semblance of conservative Presbyterianism, whatever that might be. And so... And my understanding is the EPC is not... Hardcore about it, where you no. know, so that they're not insisting that people have to have female no. ministers or even a proportion of female elders. Peculiarly, there is no quota. I don't. I don't think there's a quota for female elders, and it's up to the presbytery whether or not they will ordain women pastors. Which, I mean, on a denominational level, I don't know how that works. Right. But what happens if, if a woman is ordained in one presbytery? Can she share the pulpit in another? Right. It, it, it's practically not Presbyterianism. Right. At that level. It just doesn't work right. in my mind. It doesn't. But I think that's their their polity is fluid enough, and it's just not yeah. as much an issue that they can, they can somehow get away with it. Whereas in the CRC, for instance... I haven't followed CRC developments in a while, but my sense is that there's been much more of a mandate that eventually the conservatives have had to go along in some way and, and yeah. accept, you know, seat a female officer at a classes or synod. Um, mm-hmm. So It's kind of a heavy-handed way. Did that come about? Is this a heavy-handed way to say this is our position and, and not being content with some churches not liking it? They're just forcing women to be elders. In the past, is that with the mainline church why that practice came about? This idea of quotas, or um, uh, well, I you know I think you know once you make the argument that this is if you make if you I mean first at first in the CRC it was a question of whether it could it was possible so it was possible. But it wasn't required to have female. But, but in the mainline but, Presbyterian Church, at some point, it right, and this is where social justice sort of things kick in. Okay, and it becomes then a mandate okay. that this is what the Bible requires. Yeah, and so you conservatives are actually being unbiblical. Yeah, at first it was trying to respect their consciences and say, you know, we have a diversity of pr- perspectives on this, but eventually, it social justice takes over and says, no, this is what God requires, and so this will happen. Well, thank you so much for listening. 
You can read more from Daryl Hart at oldlife.org, or you can visit us online at reformedforum.org. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org or send us a voicemail at 440-97-FORUM. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.